Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, today may your word be heard with attentiveness, preached with boldness, and obeyed with readiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Hunter Myers. I'm the student ministry director here at the Cathedral Church, and it's such a joy to be with you here this morning. I thought I had done my due diligence, but I was wrong. You see, back before COVID, people used to go on these trips called cruises, and uh, I had never been on one before. So for Karina and I, for our honeymoon, we decided to go on a cruise, because after a year of planning a wedding with so many decisions, we were looking forward to a week where the hardest decision would be shrimp or steak. But I was so eager to go on this honeymoon trip with my wife that when I made our reservations, I listed us as Hunter and Karina Myers. I was like, oh, we're going to have the same last name. However, right before the wedding, I realized, oh no, our names are not going to match our passports, aren't going to match our reservations, and I kind of freaked out, but I called the cruise line, and they said, don't worry, just tell them at the gate, and they'll handle it for you. So they said, cut to Karina and I, brand new newlyweds, standing in front of this agent telling us that we cannot board our honeymoon cruise because our names did not match our reservation. So for 45 minutes... Karina and I are sitting in this lobby watching everybody else get on the ship, wondering, did I botch my first job as a husband, my very first thing? And I will say, Karina was incredible. We were, it was a good snapshot of what I love about our marriage. We were able to be a team even in that moment. But 45 minutes later, they had fixed our reservation. They gave us a key that matched our name, and we walked on board our cruise. And the funny thing is, we were married. That wasn't a question. Before the eyes of God, before the eyes of our family, before the state, we were married. That wasn't the question. But our name had not yet caught up to who we had become. Our name had not yet caught up to who we had become. And in our age of branding, we sometimes reverse the normal process of naming. Normally you have a name or you have something and then you name it. We kind of reverse the process. We are tempted to start with a cool name or a catchy idea or a great album title. And then we build something to match it. But we all know that names and titles don't always work that way. Our friend St. Gregory of Nyssa, he put it like this, being something does not result from being called something. Let me say that one more time. Being something does not result from being called something. And I feel this personally deep down in my soul because all of my names are professions. My full name is Mason Hunter Myers. Masons build things, hunters hunt things, and Myers is Dutch for mayor. My parents gave me three professions, of which I am none of them. We know they're not prophets. And one day, I would love, if Lord willing, to become ordained in Christ Church and to also pursue a PhD in theology, so the plot thickens. And one day, my full name might be the Reverend Dr. Mason Hunter Myers, of which I might be two of those names. One day, maybe the names will catch up, and I will catch up with them. But again, being something does not result from being called something. And for those of you who would consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, this tension presents a unique challenge. 
the noun Christian bears an important weight. But using Christian as an adjective, if we're not careful, can muddle its meaning. For example, you can go to a Christian store where you can listen to Christian music and drink Christian coffee from your Christian mug with your Christian quote on it and have no, like, what does that modify? What is it saying about your mug or your coffee? Christian can easily, as an adjective, become just another brand, just another thing on the market we can participate in. Or as uh, scholar Gregory Allen Thornberry put it, Christian is the greatest of all nouns and the lamest of all adjectives. And for us as the church, the church is entering a new season, not just a post-pandemic season, but a post-Christendom season. We have left and are leave in many ways and are leaving a world where Christian will be sufficient as an adjective. A world where the institutional church exercise power and influence that will not be the case in years and generations to come. And so to bear the name Christian in this new season will draw us back to the heart of the gospel and what it means for us to bear the name of Christ. So what does that name mean? What does it mean to bear that name, Christian? Today, our text from Acts 11 invites us to look back at those first disciples in Antioch who were called Christians. And so as we hear their story, I challenge us to bracket off our connotations and our associations with that word Christian. And this will be harder for some of us than for others because of how Christians have treated you. And that's okay. But whether you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus or not, whether you would say that you are a Christian or not, we need to understand the grace that upholds that name Christian. So I invite you to turn with me to uh, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, beginning with the 19th verse. That's Acts 11, beginning in the 19th verse. Or you can find it on page 920 of your Black Pew Bible. So as you are turning there, I'll give a little bit of context so you can see what we'll journey through. The book of Acts has two major movements. The first movement is the spread of the gospel of Jesus to Jerusalem and Judea. And the second movement is the spread of the gospel to the ends of the known world. St. Peter is the main figure in this first movement whose audience is a primarily Jewish audience. And then St. Paul is the main figure of that second movement to a Gentile or non-Jewish world. And so Acts 11, where we are today, is a transition scene between those movements. Our friend St. Peter had just received a vision from God and related to the other apostles in Jerusalem, saying that the Gentiles, too, could receive the gospel. And as a matter of fact, they saw the Holy Spirit and repentance and being poured out on this household. And so verse 18 of chapter 11 is a pregnant pause before our passage today, where the writer writes, when these They heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So our passage today picks up after this worldview-shifting revelation and realization. So let's begin in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So after St. Stephen, one of the very first deacons, was martyred by the authorities in Jerusalem, disciples of Jesus were scattered throughout the known world. Where would you go? If you were in their position, where would you go? 
Most people, and I believe most of us, would go to a city where there was opportunity, where there was a chance to build a new life, and Antioch was one of those cities. It was cosmopolitan. It was a trade center of their world. However, as these scattered disciples went around, they were only speaking to other ethnic Jews. This diaspora had not yet heard from St. Peter and heard from this, this council that God was moving among the Gentiles also. But then, something truly remarkable happens. And we see this in verses 20 and 21. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, that is the Greek-speaking Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. These evangelists were unnamed. We don't know who they were, other than that they were from Cyprus and Cyrene. And perhaps because they had been maybe born or lived among Gentiles, they saw no reason to hold back from speaking to them. Or as the text calls them, the also's. Also. Greek word is chi. That's an important word in this passage. Earlier, the apostles affirmed to the Gentiles, also God had granted repentance that leads to life. And now, quite separately from that realization, a group of unnamed disciples preached the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus to these Greek-speaking Gentiles also. So think about this. In a time of intense persecution, a group of people trusted that God was moving and working even within that kind of disruption. In a new and unfamiliar city, in a new and unfamiliar situation, they took their blinders off rather than putting them on. They saw their neighbors, Jew and Gentile alike. They discerned God in that disruption and in a way that they discovered their neighbor. Whatever this last year, whatever the COVID-19 pandemic looked like for you, we've all faced disruption in a number of ways. But in that disruption, friends, we can trust that God was moving and is still moving. He is at work. And so I wonder for us, friends, who are our also's that maybe this last year has opened our eyes to? Who are your also's? Do we have eyes to see how God is moving not only in our spheres, but in our neighbors, in those places we already are finding ourselves? Those people who we can so easily overlook when things are normal. And here's what this can look like for us on, on the ground. When you walk outside your house, pray, God, give me eyes to see. Dean Pete commended that practice a few weeks ago, and I've been trying to practice it, and every time I see people, I, I don't just see a college chad walking down the street, I see someone who's a neighbor, someone that God knows and loves. And you don't even have to know their name. Just begin to see our neighbors as God sees them. God, give me eyes to see. That is the prayer to discern God, to begin to discern God in our disruptions. But going back to the church in Antioch, continuing in verse 22, we see, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord." When I first read these verses in studying, I was awed. I was like, God, you are so good. And the fruit of this repentance is good news for us here today. And then I chuckled. 
I laughed a little bit because I felt an empathy with them standing in front of that attendant on our cruise line. The disciples and Antioch were a real church. They had really believed Jesus. They had really repented. They had really received the filling of the Holy Spirit. But someone still had to go and verify that they were who they said they were. Their name had to catch up with who they had become. And this was all part of how God was forming this church and forming his church. In fact, when Barnabas comes to Antioch and he sees this group of also's who are believing in Jesus and following his word and loving one another, he doesn't say to do anything new. He encourages them to keep doing what they're already doing. Or as he says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. However, Barnabas did need help in forming this brand new worshiping community. In verse 25, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, if you haven't read the book of Acts before, first of all, check it out. It's great. 10 out of 10 would recommend. But if you have have read it before, this is a huge reversal. This is a plot twist in the story. Who does Barnabas invite to help him form this new church community of also's? Saul. Saul of Tarsus. The same Saul who oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen, the same Saul who relentlessly persecuted the early church, who had encountered Jesus and now was an apostle. So think about that. No brand manager, no inventor, no, uh, no story writer could come up with a more satisfying twist, a satisfying reversal. Not only was God moving through the disruption of persecution, but God chose to use the man to form his family who had been the first man to persecute his family. Friends, God moves in surprising ways, and he is still moving and still forming his family in surprising ways. We can trust that. And the text continues, For a whole year they met with the church, Saul and Barnabas, and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Do you know what Methodism, Impressionism, and grunge music all have in common? All of those movements adopted the name their critics gave them. Critics of John and Charles Wesley called them Methodists because of their unique methods for evangelism and discipleship. The art salons of Paris critiqued this young movement of painters who didn't paint scenes, they painted their impressions of scenes. And grunge music, well, you kind of have to hear it. So if listening to Nirvana's Nevermind, you'll get a feel for why they called it grunge and why it stuck. And so here in this cosmopolitan city, in the city of Antioch, a group of also's, a church of also's, was first called Christian. Now the text doesn't say whether the disciples chose this name for themselves or whether their neighbors used it as a slight or a shorthand for them. All we know is that it stuck and it spread. It's the name stuck and it spread. Why did it stick? Why were there these disciples not called Jesusites? Or using his Hebrew name, Yeshuaites or Messianites? Any of those titles would have worked. Was it because to a Greek-speaking city, Christos, that title, was more familiar to them? Maybe. Possibly. What we do know is that the name Christian came after this community was formed, founded and formed in Christ. It came after the fact. Their name, in fact, was a fruit 
of the gospel at work in their lives. Again, being something does not result from being called something. But being called something often results, or being something, oh, sorry, being called something often results from being something. So why did the name Christian stick for this church of also's? And not only for them, but for everyone who would follow after and believe in Jesus today. Because Christian is a name big enough for the family that God is forming. The name Christian is the only name big enough for this diverse family that God is forming. And Christians bear that name and the title of their resurrected king, the one who founds us, the one who makes us a family. So who is this Christ? What does his name mean? What does the title Christ even mean? Well, if you look at the New Testament, here's what it means. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is our peace. Christ is light inaccessible in whom God dwells. He is sanctification and redemption. Our great high priest, our Passover, the propitiation for our souls, the brightness of the glory of God, and the image and the very substance of God's nature. He is the maker of all things, our spiritual food, our spiritual drink, the foundation and cornerstone of our faith, the image of the invisible God, the head of the body, the church, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, the firstborn of the dead, the firstborn among many brothers, the only mediator between God and man, the only begotten Son of God, the one crowned with glory and honor, the, one, the King of glory, the King of justice, the King of peace, and the only worthy King of God's kingdom. That is who Christ is and what his title means. And so for those who would follow him and to believe in his name, the name Christian is a gift of grace, something we could not earn. Who Jesus is by nature, we are invited to participate in and become like by God's grace. That is part of what it means and the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's a name big enough for who God is making us to be as a people. Christian, that is who you are. And don't fret, because if that name sounds like it bears a weight, it does. But the same God who calls, the same God who is founding his church, is the same God whose grace will sustain you and sanctify you and forgive you every step of the way as we live into the name that we bear. As our friend St. Gregory of Nyssa, again, he helpfully puts it this way. Since the grace of this name was ordained for us from above, it is necessary, first of all, for us to understand the greatness of this gift so that we can worthily thank the God who has given it to us. Then it is necessary to show through our lives what we ourselves are and what the power of this great name requires us to be by grace. In the final verses of chapter 11, these first Christians of Antioch gathered relief funds for the churches in Jerusalem and Judea, about to experience a famine, even knowing that same famine would affect them as well. Disruption will always happen in the church and in the world. We can't escape that. But here, they were no longer just a church of also's in Antioch and also's in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were Christians. So they sent relief to their brothers and sisters living in Judea and Jerusalem. Their name matched their actions. They were living as a family founded and formed in their Christ, in their King.
So friends, we too will face disruptions. They are here and they will continue coming. And we are invited every step of the way to discern our God, our King at work in those disruptions and to live in light of our Jesus. So while we are journeying and while we are becoming this family that God is forming us to be, let's do what St. Barnabas says. Here's what he says. He says, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, to remember the name and pray for God to give us eyes to see where he is at work and among our neighbors, to see our also's. And then here's the tricky part. When he shows you, join him, obey, participate, follow his lead. And for this cathedral family, I want to challenge you to do a specific practice. Ask one another, not just how are you doing, but how are you doing spiritually? Or what has God been doing in your life? And if you're like, whoa, 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 that's, that's like a pastor thing. That's like something y'all do. Like, no, y'all, every time I have asked this question to someone here in this room, they're not like, well, that's weird. The first response is gratitude. Because here's the thing, God is already working in your life and in the lives of one another. So let's ask, let's hear, let's have eyes to see what God is doing among us and of course among our communities, our also's as well. But let's start with the family, y'all. God is forming us. God is teaching us what it means to live as this family. And y'all, I know the church is messy. Christians are messy. Christ's church is filled exclusively with sinners and wounded people in need of grace. And so for you, when you might be tempted to despair at the state of the church or at the behavior of Christians, we have to remember to look to our Christ, whose name we bear, and to trust that God is forming his family. And one day, by grace, we will be able to bear that name well by our Savior's grace. Amen.